Revelation 21. And you may also want to put your finger in Isaiah 25. I'll be referencing that a little bit later on. Revelation 21 and Isaiah 25. The whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming. And you know, it's interesting because even as we get to the end, that's one of the last things that Jesus says, behold, I come quickly in chapter 22, reminds us, you know. So it's still about his coming, even though by this point in the, the uh, revelation of Christ, he's already come. The king has come. He's reigned for a thousand years. Uh, revelation 21 verse 1 took us to the end of time and into eternity. Satan has been judged forever in the lake of fire, as are the unrighteous. And so it, it might be tempting to ask, well, what's left to discuss, right? I mean, we're, we're done. And yet, there are two more chapters left in this book of Scripture. These two chapters are important because what life will be like, where we will be, you know, those are questions that we still need to answer, you know. What happens in eternity, you know? What, what will life be like for a resurrected believer after they're raised, where will we live? What will we do? Well, this morning we're going to see that our future home will be glorious, whatever it is that's going on there. So chapter 21, we begin in verse 2. It says, And I, I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Here we see the first thing that is addressed in regards to our future home is where we will live. Every time John says, I heard or I saw in Revelation, it indicates a change in his focus, sometimes even a change uh, into a whole new topic. And so the focus this time after he concludes the, 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 the wrap-up of the, the end times into eternity, he, he focuses now on a new city. He says, and I, John, saw the holy city, literally in the original language, the city, the holy one. In other words, this city is opposed to every other city on the earth. This one is set apart. It is pure. It's divine. It is solely dedicated to God's purposes. It is New Jerusalem, literally Jerusalem, a previously unknown one. In other words, this is a brand new place. This is not the Jerusalem we're familiar with that we have studied so much of in our study of the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. This is a brand new, not the Jerusalem on earth city. And it tells us that it comes down, descends from, out, from, uh, from God from out of heaven. So this is a city that is made by God and given to us as a gift. Now, Jesus talked about preparing this city in John chapter 14, uh, verse 2. In John 14, 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That's a reference to the New Jerusalem. Other references in Scripture are found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 10, it speaks of Abraham looking for this city. 
It says in 11.10 that Abraham, by faith, he, was, he looked for a city which has foundations. It says whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11.16. But now they, this is referring to the Old Testament saints who died in faith, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 12, 22. You've not been brought to Mount Sinai. You know, that was scary, right? That was terrifying. Even Moses himself, who knew the Lord probably better than anybody there, he quaked being in the presence of God. But this city, there will be none of, no quaking, nothing to fear. It says, you are coming to Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. John in Revelation 3, verse 12, recording the words of Jesus, Jesus mentions this city, this heavenly city made by God as a reward for those who overcome. In Revelation 3, 12, he says to the church of Philadelphia, to him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Galatians 4.26, where Paul the Apostle trying to teach the Galatians to flee legalism, that they've embraced this false teaching, he contrasts Hagar, the, you know, her son, Ishmael, the son of the flesh, she's the mother of the son of the flesh, with you know, Sarah, the mother of the son of the promise, Isaac. And he contrasts how the, the idea of trying to be justified by keeping the law is being like a Hagar. You know, you're, that, you're, that's your mother. That's not the mother of the promise. And so in Galatians 4, verse 26, he says this, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. <laughs> the language that is used when this city is spoken of, it stands in contrast to the lake of fire and to Babylon. The lake of fire was created not for humanity, but for the devil and his angels. That's what the Bible says. The heavenly Jerusalem was created for God's people, the ones that he made, created for mankind. Babylon was the mother of harlots, a false city that betrayed and led astray. But the new Jerusalem is our true mother. It's the home of a bride. It mentions here in Revelation chapter 21 too that she descends, this city descends from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word adorned there is cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmetics from. The city isn't just complete. It's beautifully decorated like a bride on her wedding day. It's a gift from the Lord to us. Now, people say, well, is this a real city? Yeah, it's a real city because we get real dimensions, real measurements for the city later on in the chapter. This city is indeed a city uh, the size and kind of which humanity has never fathomed. But it is a literal city that descends from the literal sky as John sees here. Now the question, of course, is, well, when does this city arrive? I, I say not soon enough. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to go home. But when does this city arrive? Is it, is it in the eternal state with the new heaven and the new earth? 
that seems most natural here in the text here, but that does seem to contradict the words of Jesus who says he will bring us into this city when he returns for us. In John 14, 3, right after he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, when I come to get you, I'm going to take you to be where I am. So the idea is that is our home. He's going to take us there immediately. So then does that mean that the new Jerusalem, that we'll be in it when we get raptured and then we'll descend with it to earth during the millennial kingdom? That seems to make sense, but that creates some issues too because the very next verses say there'll be no more death, and we know that death isn't destroyed until the end of the millennium. So when does it descend to the earth? I don't know. For sure, I should say. I have an idea. I do want to point out that good, solid Christians have disagreed on when this happens, so it's not something to argue about. As we navigate the next two chapters, I'm going to do my very best to present a biblical basis for my viewpoint. Uh, but don't be concerned if you, dis- if you disagree with me. Uh, I guarantee you neither of us will be disappointed if we find out we're wrong when we finally arrive at this point in history. So, Like you might look over me and say, I told you so, and I'll be, I don't care. <laughs> and then we'll put our arms around each other and go in, you know? It'll be all good, so... What we do know is where we're going to live is the new Jerusalem. And that secondly, it will be with the Lord. Look at verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, which means pay attention. This is important. The tabernacle of God is with men. Is with men. In the company of men is what that word with means. God's tent, God's dwelling place is in the company of men. This was the promise of the tabernacle that Moses instructed Israel to build. God told Moses, he said, I'm going to give you instructions so I can be in the midst of my people. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will be in your midst. And yet, that tabernacle, that tent, it had limitations, didn't it? Only the high priest could go into the, where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, and even then, only once a year. Only the priest could serve inside the tent. That's why David said, oh man, I wish I could just be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord because that would have gotten him closer. So there were limitations. Well, this new city will be a place where there's no limitations, where God will dwell in the company of all men, where Revelation 22, 4 says, and they shall see his face. Won't that be wonderful? (laughs) It says that he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. The word dwell, it means he'll take up residence with us. It's the same exact word that's used to describe Jesus coming to the earth. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It could be translated tented or tabernacled among us. The same exact word here. God the Father will walk in our midst once again, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, how many times do we see in Scripture the longing to be with the Lord? Moses, show me your glory. I can't. You'll die. Job, I just wish that there was someone who could connect me to God. Paul the Apostle, it's one thing I do. I just want to know him better. Well, then we'll know even as we're known, face to face. See through a glass darkly now, but then face to face. 
There are so many things, so many things that make the New Jerusalem awesome. We'll get to that in a second. But the most awesome thing about it is being in the presence of the Lord. You know, sometimes, you know, I get it. You know, I, I understand. I'm, I'm an active individual. You know, I, I, my, I like to get my mind going. You know, I don't tend to like just sit around. You know, um, you know, my wife has domesticated me a little bit more, and, uh, and I certainly enjoy her company. I have six children. I love their company, you know. I have friends. I, lo- I love your company, you know. But I tend to lean towards finding something to do. And so I understand that sometimes the idea, someone said, so is heaven just going to be, you know, just be like, Here's the Lord, and here's me, and this, we just kind of sit, you know, for all eternity, you know, is, and we sing, you know, and, and, you know, maybe I get a little cloud and a harp, and, you know, and, you know, I understand that sometimes people are going, is that it? You know, I mean, I mean, it doesn't sound as exciting as everyone makes it sound. I don't know all the details of what everyday life will be like. The Bible doesn't tell us. It tells us we will go in and go out, though, so, I mean, we're not just going to be singing all the time. I think worship will probably be going on all the time. I don't think every individual in heaven will always be singing all the time. The Bible says he's going to be showing us his kindness for all eternity. I don't know what that is, but it sounds good. You know, when, when my wife does something nice for me, that's a good thing. My kids do something nice for me, that's a good thing. And then to those of you who would say, well, you know, what will it be like just spending time with the Lord? Well, think about what it would be like to what it is like now to spend time with the person you love spending time with most. And then multiply that times a billion because there's nothing like the Lord. So the greatest thing, the most awesome thing about the New Jerusalem is that we will be in the presence of the Lord. And yet, when we think of how cool that was for Adam and Eve in the garden, this will be better than Eden because there will be no possibility of a fall. Look at verse 4. What will life be like? It tells us. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Life will be nothing like it is now because the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. What will life be like? It'll be totally different than this life. It mentions first off here that he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. People cry for many reasons. Some cry more, and then some cry less, like me. (laughs) Emotional tears, they contain more stress hormones and natural painkillers than other types of tears, like the tears you get when someone's cutting an onion. You know, these types of emotional tears are more powerful, both physically and emotionally. When we cry those tears, it is to relieve the stress and the pain that we're experiencing or because the stress and the pain has been recently relieved. Both kinds of tears will be wiped away in that moment. Why? Well, it tells us there shall be no more death. No more death. Now, because Revelation 20, verse 14 states that death is thrown into the lake of fire after the millennial kingdom, almost all Bible teachers believe verses 4 through 8 refer to the eternal state. To be frank, the most natural and simple chronology and context of these verses points to this referring to the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. But there are some things I'd like to point out. The Bible teaches us that resurrected believers experience the end of death long before the new heavens and the new earth. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it, it explains to us that our situation when we are raised from the dead is radically different than it is for us now. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again, made us alive again, unto a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to, this is where we end up, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved not in eternity, but in heaven for you. We begin this experience of incorruptibility. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 15 when it says that we shall all be transformed. The corruptible shall put on incorruptible. The mortal shall put on immortality. That is our experience the moment that we are raised from the dead. When Jesus raptures us and we are with Him, we enter into that eternal state in the sense of our experience, what our bodies experience. And if these blessings are ours the moment that Jesus resurrects us and takes us to heaven, it would seem odd to me for resurrected believers to cry at the end of millennium. What is there to cry about? We've not experienced death. We've not experienced loss, pain, or any of the other things mentioned here. In addition to this, I would like to point out that there's a similar passage in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to give you a a little deep thinking here. Isaiah 25 is wedged between Isaiah 24 and 26. (laughs) The context of Isaiah 25, therefore, is crucial. Isaiah 24, which comes before Isaiah 25, I know, deep thinking, explains the prophet predicting God's judgment upon the world during the Great Tribulation. You read through it and you see it. We've actually quoted Isaiah 24 through our study of Revelation. Isaiah 26, which comes after 25, is a song Israel will sing in the Millennial Kingdom. So Isaiah 25 comes between the judgment during the Great Tribulation and the song Israel's going to sing in the Millennial Kingdom, which would then suggest that the events of Isaiah 25 are in between those two events, correct? Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And how has God shown this? For you have made of a city a heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built, the King James says, but the idea is rebuilt. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible, awesome, ruthless nations shall fear you. In other words, God destroys a city, and the nations as a result fear Him. The awesome nations, the ones who have been ruthless. We see that in Revelation when God destroys the city of Babylon. For though, verse 4, you have, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain, contextually it's referring to Jerusalem, Shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines and the lees, a fat things full of marrow of wines and the lees well refined. 
and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. This Paul that has been over the earth for these seven years of Isaiah 24, he will destroy it starting right there in Jerusalem. Verse 8, he will swallow up death in victory and the Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest and Moab shall be trodden down under him. And then it goes on talking about what God destroyed to rescue his people. And so these are where these ideas in John's mind come from about wiping away tears, death being destroyed. The idea is that for the resurrected, it is already destroyed. We will never experience it again. And so while Revelation 21 verses 4 through 8 certainly explains how things will be in the eternal state, the truth is resurrected believers begin to enjoy these blessings before the eternal state starts. The new Jerusalem, a place, will be free from death, from stress, from pain and tears It's the home for all resurrected believers. In Hebrews 12, it says to the spirits of all just men made perfect. That experience begins the moment we move in, the moment Jesus comes and gets us, gives us our new bodies. And that experience, every resurrected believer will begin to experience at the start of the millennial kingdom. And thus, I hold with Dwight D. Pentecost who believed that these verses don't refer to an either or. They refer to both the millennium and the eternity. I don't think an either or is necessary because the conditions of eternity start for all resurrected believers immediately. There will be no death, no sorrow, no crying or pain in the new Jerusalem, just as there will be none of those things in the new heaven and the new earth. And can you imagine what that will be like? Can you imagine a place where you're never separated from those you love? We never have to worry about death. I remember the first time I lost a loved one. I was a very young pastor. I had not done a memorial service, so this was going to be my first time. A lot of focus had to go in prepping for that and obviously ministering to the family. I did the memorial service, held it together, went to the graveside, did the service there. Everyone left. I remember I got in the car and I did not turn the car on. I sat there with this huge, huge pain in my heart. And I grieved. I grieved for a good two hours, crying out to the Lord. I said, this is wrong, 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 so wrong. You have to explain this to me because I'm not leaving until I understand. As I went through my Bible and I prayed and I talked to the Lord, I realized It's wrong because it's wrong. It was never the way God intended it to be. God did not create death. Death entered by sin, the scripture says. Death is not a part of God's plan. Don't let everyone ever tell you death is a natural cycle of life. No, they're the antithesis of life. It's no natural cycle. It's why God destroys it. It's an enemy. It's not a part of the plan of God. An enemy to be defeated. It's what we brought upon ourselves. 
God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. And when man sinned, death entered in. Can you imagine what it would be like to never have to experience that feeling again? Never have to say goodbye again? The relief of that makes me teary-eyed now. And yet, the benefits don't stop there. It says, neither sorrow. The word sorrow means to experience sadness or grief as a result of depressing circumstances. Can you imagine a place where nothing can happen that makes you sad? You know, if the last few years have taught me anything, they've been a vivid reminder that this world is not my home. It is not my home. I'm as out of place as out of place can be. The way the world thinks, the way it functions, the way death reigns, it is not my home. My home, your home, if you're a believer, is the new Jerusalem. That's what we're living for, guys. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're not looking for any city whose builder and maker is fill in the blank. That's going to have sorrow of some kind in it because it's somewhere that group or that person's going to let you down. No more pain. Neither crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. No more suffering. Pain can be immediate and intense. It can also be continuous and draining. Neither of those will exist in the new Jerusalem. Amen? <laughs> no waking up and Ey! And no laying in bed at night trying to just sleep through it. Neither. Neither. God. No more suffering. There will be no stubbed toes, no broken bones, no cuts, no malignant lumps, no headaches, no soreness, no inflammation, no disease, and no doctors. That was not a critique, by the way. Doctors are great. Thankful for them. But your, your services will no longer be required. Dr. Jesus will have the fix. Our new bodies will be fitted for this new Jerusalem and then they will not require the same things our earthly bodies need to exist. Doesn't that sound great? You know? Doc's like, you know, well, you need, to, you, need to, you need to get more exercise. And I'm like, I would, but my back does not agree with you. No more of that. Why? For the former things are passed away. Because... None of these things will exist in our eternal state. The old way that we existed will have ceased to exist. Doesn't that sound great? That's why I say not soon enough. It'll be a totally new way of life. Look at verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, pay attention, this is important. I make all things new. The word there, new, that which is previously unknown, that which is superior to the old. Listen, our present bodies are beautiful creations. 
I mean, I remember when I broke my foot a couple years ago, doctor was explaining to me the process of how this works. It gave me all this paperwork, you know, and I read through it, and then, of course, you know, I went online and studied some more things, and I was learning about, you know, how this works, and I'm like, how does anyone not believe in God when this is how this, my foot's going to repair itself? I'm like, how on earth do we think that just happened? That's ludicrous. It's like, I mean, if, you, if I wasn't a believer, I'd be like, that's magic or witchcraft or something like that. It literally, it takes like it sends, well, I don't need to give you all the details. Anyway, it recreates a whole new bone that's exactly the same as the one that the one used to be. It takes about two and a half years for the healing process and the, to occur, but, but, but you know, it, it is. How does it know? How does it happen? Our bodies are beautifully, David correctly said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But as beautiful as our present bodies are, they have great limitations. Our new bodies will not have those. Our new bodies will likely not need to eat, likely not need to sleep. And what we eat won't be able to affect us negatively. <laughs> that is not an excuse for gluttony, you know. You know <laughs> like, Lord, I'll be able to enjoy all this stuff I can't eat now. And I, think, uh, I think my motive would be a little bit better too then. In the same way, though, working won't wear us out. First, how do you know that? First John 3, verse 2, it says, Behold, brothers, we don't know exactly what we're going to be like. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know everything, but we know this. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, what's he like? Isaiah 40, 28. I, I could, this could be a whole study on its own, but just give you an idea. Isaiah 40, 28 tells us, have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint, neither is weary? Right? So if we're going to be like he is, we will not grow weary either. How does that work, like our biology? I don't know. But I know that the old way of how this body works will cease to exist. And my new body will function in a completely different capacity that is fitted for the new Jerusalem. I say, man, that sounds great. Some might say, yeah, too good to be true. Almost like a fairy tale. And so I find it interesting that at the end of verse five, God tells John, it's really gonna happen, John. This isn't fairy tale. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. He, the one on the throne, the Lord, no angel is sent to relay this message to John. The one who walked with John, the one who knew John, the one who John knew, the one who John said, that which we have you know, heard, we have touched with our own hands, that which we've seen with our own eyes, we relate to you. Because our joy is in fellowship with that one, and we want you to have that fellowship too. That one that John knew, the Lord he speaks to him and he says, write. It means you must write this down. Don't leave this out, John. For these words, they are true and faithful. True means genuine, real, not imaginary, factual, and then faithful, trustworthy, reliable. When John 
heard these words from the one who walked with him. He knew they were true because he knew the source of the information was trustworthy. And so we come right back to where it all starts, the question of faith. Faith is trusting God, not just that he exists. Oh, I believe. Yeah, the demons do too. Faith is trusting who God says he is, what he says he'll do, what he says is right, what he says is wrong, what he says is true, what he says is false, and then living our lives accordingly. And so when we are confronted with the realities of pain, sorrow, death, it brings into question our faith, right? Do we really believe? Do we really believe what God says, that he is who he is? Every decision we make, every action we take is a reflection of what we believe. And when it comes to whether God is worth obeying or serving or laying down my rights, my choices reflect whether or not I believe he is truly good. Whether or not I truly believe that this is the future he has promised me. And so, when we face sorrow, pain, or death, do we believe that our last breath here becomes our first breath there? Do we believe that depressing circumstances and physical and emotional pain are temporary? That it's worth pushing through and continuing to obey because of what God promises us is waiting in eternity? These are the questions every Christian has to wrestle with at some point. And I believe the Lord would say to you this morning, just as he said to John, it is true, it is real, it is not a fairy tale. Well, we get to verse six now in Revelation 21, and God here makes a final appeal to mankind. It says, verse six, and he said unto me, the Lord, same one who's been speaking this whole time to John, he said unto me, it is done. God at this point has done everything he promised he would do. And thus we get a closing appeal and a closing warning to every human being from their creator. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. John opened the letter of Revelation with these words from Jesus, and now the Lord closes his address to John with the very same statement. I am eternal. I am omnipotent. No one can stand against me. We see the whole book of Revelation proves that. The whole world can come in rebellion to God, and the Lord just says, it's over. And yet here's the words that the Lord says in light of the fact that no one can stand against him. And it's this, none of you need to stand against me because I don't want to stand against you. He says, I will give unto him that is a thirst from out of the fountain, out of the spring of the water of life freely. What's the water of life? Jesus mentioned it in John chapter four. Someone else pointed out to me, he mentions it again in John 7. John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, whosoever drinks of this water, the water at the well, they'll thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Are you thirsty this morning? Stop trying to quench it with something else. 
You're going to have to keep going back to that well over and over, or you're going to have to go from well to well to well to well, just like the woman at the well had been doing, because nothing except the water of life can satisfy. And unlike everything else out there that does have a price tag, the Lord already paid the price for the water of life, and he offers it freely. The word there freely means without cost. This is God's consistent offer. Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord says the same exact words. Hundreds of years before Jesus uttered the words that he did to the woman at the well. Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters, and he that has no money, come you. Buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live and I will give, make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. What were the sure mercies of David that he promised him? He said, if your son disobeys me, I won't cast him off. I'll chasten him, but I won't cast him off. I will be loyal to him. Agape, I said, the unconditional devotion of God. This has always been God's offer to humanity. It will be one of the last things that John records in the book of Revelation. The Spirit and the bride say, come, take of the water of life freely. Come, take, trust me. I am all-powerful, but I am kind, I am gracious, and I am good. And the Lord says here to John, the choice is theirs. The choice is yours. And each choice has consequences. Verse 7, he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Who is an overcomer? First John chapter 5, 4, and 5. Who is he that overcomes? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The victorious one, the overcomer, is the person who has trusted Christ as their Savior and who is following him. He says to that person, they shall inherit all things. The word inherit is important because it's going to be in contrast to a word we see in verse 8. Inherit means to receive something of considerable value that has not been earned. He that overcomes, you'll receive something of a considerable value that you've not earned. And what is it? All things. Some translations say these things. In other words, everything John saw in verses 2 through 4. The new Jerusalem, God's presence in our midst, no tears, no death, no sorrow, no more pain. Certainly it is all those things, but it is also everything that Jesus promised to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation because he says to him that overcomes, and then each one has a list. It is our incorruptible inheritance that does not fade away. After the great Chicago fire of 1871, evangelist Dwight L. Moody went back to survey the ruins of his house. A friend came by and said to Moody, I hear you lost everything. Well, said Moody, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. What do you mean, the inquisitive friend asked. I didn't know you were that rich. Moody then opened his Bible and read to him, Revelation 21.7, He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. That's faith. That's a man who believed what it says. So that even though he'd lost everything, he pressed on. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Status of a son. 
It makes us joint heirs with Christ. It elevates us to a position we could never come close to attaining on our own, a position we could never improve on if we chose to go our own way. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, Paul addressed a segmented, fragmented group of believers who were fighting with one another. They'd gotten into factions, and he's, they said, I'm, I follow Paul, you know? I go, I go to the first church of Paul, you know? And, you know and, well, we follow Peter, you know? We're the first church of Peter. We get back to our roots. I follow Apollos. He's hip, you know? He's from Alexandria. He's got the, all the knowledge, man, you know? even got a tattoo. (laughs) Paul says to them after correcting them for this sectarian mindset, therefore let no man glory in men. That should be like on all of our, like if you own a radio, you know, or like a computer, you know, or like a, some type of headset that gets a podcast or some type of show in there. You need to put that on there. Therefore, let no man glory in men because you don't need to for all things are yours. We don't need to glory in joining some group or being part of some group or, or, or following some person because we already have everything. You know, I, I mean, how, how, would you, how would you feel if, if, you know, your kid, you know, and, 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 and you know, here you, you just blessed them, you know, on, on Christmas, you know, whatever, you know, and, and, and you got them everything that was on their list, and, you know, and it was a joyful moment, and then they up and walked out and went out the door, and they said, where are you going? And so my friend Tommy, you know, you know, I think there might be something over there for me. Dude, you got everything you need right here. What could Tommy have that, that you don't have? And that's the thing. We are... Christ's. All things are already ours. What else do we need to grasp for? Well, what other thing do we need to be connected to to find meaning in life or happiness or security or safety? He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, they're all yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. When we understand this truth, we view the world differently. We view our decision-making differently. Because all these things, they don't have a hold on me because I've been elevated to joint heir status with the one who already holds them all. See, I want want to join myself to this group, and that's where I'm going to find fulfillment. Good luck. You'll be disappointed. But as you walk in Christ, he's the one that you follow behind. You already have everything. John 10, 10, it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly, life on a different level, now and for all eternity. All things are ours. If you're a believer in Christ, you already have everything. Now, the right choice is obvious here, and yet many will take the other option, and thus, After God's appeal, he gives a warning as well. Verse 8. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In contrast to he that overcomes, but as for 
The fearful means the cowardly ones, those who feared man instead of the Lord. The unbelieving, those who trusted in themselves instead of the Lord. The abominable, this word is often used to describe idolatry, but since idolaters is mentioned later, this has more to do with the attitude than the action of idolatry. It means those who have polluted themselves by having a shameless attitude towards the things the Lord says he hates. Murderers, whoremongers, it means immoral persons. This includes every kind of sexually immoral behavior, sexual conduct between unmarried people, adultery, homosexual behavior. What is interesting, though, is that the way this is phrased in the original language is it's listed as a title, an identity. So it's a title, whether it's a given title or a self-identified title. And thus, when it says whoremongers, it means those who choose to pursue their own idea of sexuality instead of recognizing God's design for sexuality. Sorcerer is pharmakos in the Greek. It means a poisoner, one who used drugs to pierce through the natural and into the supernatural. And thus, it is those who would elevate their state of being through the use of drugs instead of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Idolaters, those who would worship something other than the Lord. And then, interestingly enough, it says, and all liars. It doesn't just say liars. It's almost like the Lord, you know, anticipates that we'll ignore lying as a little sin when it isn't to Him. They shall have their part. That stands in contrast to inherit. Inherit means to be given something you haven't earned, but the word part, it means the part which belongs to someone, the part that is theirs. Heaven is a free gift, our inheritance from God. The lake of fire is the fair share of everyone who goes there. It's what belongs to them because their life was defined by these things instead of their faith in Christ. And thus the warning is clear. If I reject Christ and trust in my own goodness, I will realize when it's too late that I actually fall into one of these categories. I will think I'm a good person, but I will find out I actually fall into one of these categories, that I'm not good. And in that day, God will give me exactly what I deserve instead of the water of life that I could have had for free. I would say to you this morning, please don't ignore that warning. Repent. If you don't know the Lord, if you've not repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ alone as Savior, repent. Change your mind. Place your trust in Christ. Take the water of life he offers and become a child of the King because that's the only way in. And if you are a child of the king, set your mind on things above where Christ dwells. For when Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. That's what we're living for, amen? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this hope we have in you, this hope of resurrection, of an end to death, pain, sorrow, and crying. Lord, being with you forever inheriting all things. That sounds awesome. And so, Lord, we belong to you. And this morning, or maybe there are some who, maybe they are living in ways that fit into the categories of verse 8. Lord, would you reach out to them with bands of loving kindness, drawing them to repentance? And Lord, is there are some even now praying and saying, Lord, I want to forsake these things and I want to follow you. Lord, would you fill them with your spirit? Give them, Lord, the strength they need to leave Babylon, to walk in the light. Will you bless every dear 
brother and sister this morning and would you, Lord, let no one leave today without understanding and comprehending the gospel. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.